we're working our way through uh, a portion of Hebrews where we think about sympathy and sovereignty. And I think as you see the text that we were supposed to deal with, and the subject matter just kind of fits. It's kind of the way he does things. Um, we're looking at sympathy and sovereignty. Let me tell you a little bit about the individuals to whom the writer of the uh, letter to the Hebrews um, the Jewish Christians to whom this letter has been written, uh, they had been Christians for years, but the years had not been kind. The anticipated second coming of Christ had not materialized. And the all-for-one and one-for-all days of Jewish Christianity in Jerusalem early on had been eroded by years of famines and persecutions. Uh, their decisions to become Christians had caused them to have to forfeit both neighborhood and livelihood, their decision to become Christians was now adversely impacting not only themselves, but their children. It left them with difficult questions. Why do we suffer? Is God unaware? Does he care? In addressing their disillusionment and division, the writer of the letter of Hebrews focuses their attention on the character of God. Sovereignty and sympathy are like Lenses and a pair of glasses, if you're without one lens, things are really cattywampus. They're like lenses of a pair of binoculars. And if you want to see things clearly, if you want to see things in perspective, sovereignty and sympathy both need to be in place. If God is good and sovereign, if God is good and sympathetic but not sovereign, if God is sovereign but not sympathetic, if God is sovereign and sympathetic, and that provides us with the perspective we need to get through times like this and any time. Um, we understand being worn down by life. We who have difficult questions relative to why God would take somebody home that had a voice like J.C. and nobody knew. Um, we benefit from gazing at God's sympathy and God's sovereignty. And he is the one that we look at now. He is the one to whom we direct our focus. We try to get him in view. Um, what it says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Death is seen here as a henchman in the devil's service. The threat of death is a cudgel stick with which he bludgeons humanity into submission. And the submission is something that causes us to relate to God as ma servants relate to a master rather than sons relate to a father. This is the problem that Jesus is targeting. Spiritual slavery. Slave faith. When we approach God as servants to a master, it ends up producing dissociation and division. We cut parts of ourselves loose that we don't think measure up. We cut people loose who we don't think measure up. This is what's happening in the Jewish community to whom the letter to the Hebrews is written. The community is splitting because they've endured the things they've endured for so long, some are deserting Christ. Uh, 
in order to get back into the synagogue and experience the benefits that the synagogue afforded, both social and material and emotional. Those who are refusing to desert Christ are critical and resentful of those who are bailing out, and the Jewish Christian community is fracturing. The devil uses the fear of death as a whip to enslave mankind. The fear of death promotes spiritual slavery. Spiritual slavery produces division. And spiritual slavery is the issue. It's what Jesus comes to try to deal with. Jesus comes to be embodied, to share in flesh and blood, not just for a point in time, but to remain embodied. He does that in order to deal with spiritual slavery. His mission has two objectives. Destroy the slave master and deliver the slaves. Uh, says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. To destroy means to make ineffective or incapacitate. It's not so much that Jesus comes to annihilate the devil. He comes to incapacitate him, to not allow him to be able to beat mankind into submission. It's the equivalent of set phasers to stun. That's what to destroy means. Not It's to overwhelm. Um, the primary goal of Jesus' coming was to nullify the devil's ability to enslave children of God through the fear of death. In so doing, we find divine anger and divine sympathy. Let's talk about divine anger. There are times, if you look in the Old Testament, where the prophets depict God himself as being a divine warrior and coming down to earth to do warfare, to contend with individuals. Look what it says in Isaiah 59. We find one of those passages in your worship folder. Um, this is what Isaiah says. God's prompting, truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries and repayment to his enemies. Opposing commanders sometimes settled military conflict to agree in advance the two champions would be able to fight it out. And that's what we find with David and Goliath. David represents one and Goliath represented another. That's the picture that we have here. God as the champion who rescues the captives of an evil tyrant. God is displeased that there is moral anarchy. He is more displeased that there is no one to intercede, that the individuals who are being incarcerated in spiritual slavery, are morally bankrupt. He's displeased with that, but that's not what he's appalled at. That's not what he's astonished. That's not the problem. The problem is that there's no one who intercedes on God's behalf and on the people's behalf. So what God does then, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate. He puts on the armament of war. He personally enters into conflict. 
and what we understand that Jesus became flesh and blood in order to make this practical. And Jesus entered into the field of battle, our champion. Uh, that's what it says, John eleven thirty one through 33. This is when Lazarus has passed away. Jesus was away, learned about it, but remained where he was for a period of days, then went to this place where Lazarus had died. And then we read, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus arrives at Bethany, at the place, a couple miles, it's a bedroom community of Jerusalem. These are really good friends of Jesus. When he's going to Jerusalem, he stops by to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he stops by, but when he does so, Lazarus has been dead for four years. Jews believed that the soul at the time, the soul hovers over the body of the deceased person for three days, intending to re-enter it. As soon as the Jews believe the spirit sees decomposition that it has set in, and the spirit departs. At this point, after four days, death is irreversible in the Jewish frame of mind. Absolutely no chance for resuscitation. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved means literally the snorting of horses or the way a bull paws the ground before it charges. That's what Jesus is feeling. Deeply moved. He is outraged. He is angry. There's the equivalent in him of snorting, pawing the ground, ready to take something on. He is a champion entering the field of battle. That's what's happening here. That's what he's feeling. He is the divine champion come down to take on that adversary which binds his people and to deliver his people. That's what's going on. Uh, Jesus' inward reaction was anger, outrage, and indignation. He is pawing the ground, getting ready to charge. John adds that not only was he deeply moved, he was troubled. That means stirred up and churned up, agitated like a storm at sea or a washing machine. It's not possible. This is, he's gonna, he's gonna, there's gonna be grief. There's gonna be sympathy, but that's not here yet. That's not here yet. This is divine anger. This is, I'm gonna take something on. It's edgy. He's getting ready. Why is Jesus angry? Who is the adversary? That comes down and he's going to take on the adversaries. He's going to wrap himself in zeal as a cloak. Who is he targeting? Is he going after? Um, we learn, I think, Jesus once more deeply moved. And that, again, that's pawing the ground. Deeply moved when he came to the tomb. It was a cave 
with a stone laid across the entrance. And as Jesus comes and moves toward this cave with the stone, he starts to get edgy. He starts to get ready. And he's ready to do battle. What is he doing battle with? The tomb itself evokes the response. It's not about the weeping of the people. It's about the violent tyranny of death. And he's going to do battle with it. It's the sepulcher itself. He will, get his, he will need his anger to get to the cross. Part of what Jesus got to the cross when he understood what he was going to do. He's going to take death on. And the sense, he, has, he feels a lot of things, but there is an edginess about this. I'm going to get this done. That's, that's what we find here. The emotion in him was directed toward the sepulcher. Jesus is like a wrestler preparing for a contrast, a soldier, a soldier preparing for battle. That's what, that's what he's going on inside. What we read is when a strong, in Luke 11, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, strong, when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Jesus is the stronger man. We are the spoil. We are the ones that he comes to release. Um, if you look on the back of your worship folder, there's a reading. I'll read it and let's look along by Max Lucado. Really like this. Yeah. It is finished. Stop and listen. Can you imagine a cry from the cross? The sky is dark. The other two vic- victims are moaning. The jeering mouths are silent. Perhaps there is thunder. Perhaps there is weeping. Perhaps there is silence. Then Jesus draws in a deep breath, pushes his feet down on that Roman nail and cries, It is finished. What was finished? The history-long plan of redeeming man was finished. The message of God to man was finished. The works done by Jesus as a man on earth were finished. The task of selecting and training ambassadors was finished. The job was finished. The song had been sung. The blood had been poured. The sacrifice had been made. The sting of death had been removed. It was over. A cry of defeat. Hardly had his hands not been fastened down. I dare say that a triumphant fist would have punched the dark sky. No, this is not a cry of despair. It is a cry of completion, a cry of victory, a cry of fulfillment. Yes, even a cry of relief. It's over. An angel sighs. A star wipes away a tear. Take me home. Yes, take him home. Take this prince to his king. Take this son to his father. Take this pilgrim to his home. He deserves a rest. Take me home. Come, 10,000 angels. Come and take this wounded troubadour to the cradle of his father's arms. Farewell, manger's infant. Bless you, holy ambassador. Go home, death slayer. Rest well, sweet soldier. The battle is over. While heat is directed at death, warmth is directed at mankind. Find divine sympathy. We find John 11, 34 and 35, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. Uh, what do these tears communicate? They're not tears of helplessness or powerlessness. Sometimes we do that when we stand by a grave and we look at somebody that is gone, they're gone too soon, and we couldn't do anything to prevent it. And sometimes we feel helplessness and powerlessness. This is not what Jesus is feeling. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus. He already knows he's going to do it. So it's not powerlessness or helplessness. These aren't tears of remorse and regret. He knows that because of what people see, they will come to believe that he is the resurrection and the life. He knows what he's going to do. He knows why he's going to do it. Why is he crying? These are expressions of sympathy. These are expressions of sympathy. He is God and man. He is champion, and he's one who understands what it's like when somebody loses something, and he enters into the experience of those who matter to him. Uh, Jesus' inner agitation is not limited to his battle with death. He weeps with those who are weeping. He's caught up in the grief over Lazarus' death. He experiences and participates in the grief of all those who have loved ones who have gone into the grave. And as we look at Jesus, then, we tend to see his divinity, but not his humanity, but this is the clearest expression of the humanity of Jesus in the Scriptures. Divine, he knows what's going to happen. Human, he weeps. Um, the death slayer, just so you know, if you had any question, is not one who forbids tears in his presence. Uh, Jesus experienced strong emotions. And one thing, we all handle our grief differently. Some of us connect in order to deal with grief. Some of us disconnect in order to deal with grief. You might find me a little evasive. I'm more of the disconnecting kind. But we deal with grief the way we need to deal with grief. Uh, Jesus experienced strong emotions. He didn't throw penalty flags at them. Look what it says in John 12. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' soul is troubled. His emotions are churned up. It's the same word used earlier, not of the pawing of the ground, but the agitation of a storm. He understands that his death is imminent, but he also knows what's going to happen. He knows that because he dies, people will inhabit eternity. Uh, He cannot multiply life if not planted. However, eternal realities are not sufficient to control the surging emotions he feels. Eternal implications are not sufficient to push down the surging emotions he feels. It's okay to know somebody's going to heaven and to grieve that they're gone. Eternity is not supposed to be something 
that we use as a mental corset to keep the tears in our eyes and the sadness out of our heart. That's not what we find with Jesus. He didn't, he was aware of the eternal implications and being aware of the internal implications, still it welled up within him and his soul was troubled, agitated. He felt strong feelings. And the thing that Jesus doesn't do, he doesn't do what some of us do is throw penalty flags at them. I shouldn't be feeling this. I'm a Christian. I should be, I should believe enough in eternity that this should not be sad. That's not what Jesus does. He experiences sadness. He knows there's, there's eternal things happening, but he lets it come out. Why? Because it's important for it to come out. Because he's embodied. Because when you live in a body and somebody is physically gone from you, there's something that reaches out. It's part of being embodied. It's part of being human. And Jesus knows what it's like to be human, and he doesn't throw penalty flags at the human part. He doesn't try to condition it with harsh words. or <laughs> Again, we, we all deal with grief different ways. But it's okay to deal with grief. It's not unchristian to deal with grief. Find places. Find comfortable places where you can think, I told you a story once, and I'll probably find a place like this. I had a friend who passed away. I told you this, but... yeah. Anyways, she is somebody that I had known. I was away at college. And she passed away as a senior in college. I had a senior in high school. I had been in college for a year, a couple of years at this point. So I came home and I, I knew her well enough that I wanted to pay a visit. I wasn't able to come back for the funeral. So I came back to, to visit Mrs. Pelesi. Uh, she lived about three miles away. I drove there, and I knocked on the door. I came in. Jeez, I'm really sorry. She, what she did, she took me in, and, and she had me sit down and got me something to drink, and then she took out a photo album. And she put it down in front of me, and she started flipping pages. And at first, I said, well, yeah, that's really nice to see. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, I remember that. And she kept on flipping pages. And I became a little uncomfortable. I think I might have been here enough. But then I really started to look at the images. And then I started to cry. And she just stayed there. And she let me have my time. And then she said, thank you so much for coming. And I left there because I thought I'd gone there to give something to her. And she had given something to me. The chance to grieve. The chance to see an image. Heard a guy talk about um, dealing with the death of a father. And he was a very successful minister. And what he ended up doing was, in his own words, skimming. Skimming. Too many things to do. This guy thought that if you are spiritually fit and physically fit, you're bulletproof. That's what he thought. So he skimmed. That's what he found. And then what he found is that over the course of a couple months, everything started to die inside. 
his enthusiasm for everything began to dissipate. He became very concerned. He didn't know what was happening. He talked to a counselor, and the counselor said, hmm, you lost your father. What did you do? He described it, and I just couldn't do much. He goes, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get in a car. He lived close enough. I want you to drive to the cemetery, and I want you to sit there. just want you to sit there long enough and just give yourself some time to think. Went there and sat and after a little while the busyness of things then it came and over time what he ended up saying it's not enough to be spiritually and physically fit can't skim over emotions. Emotions are part of being spiritual. They're part of being physical. Jesus felt a lot of things. I think Jesus was afraid to die. I think he felt it. And I think he was not afraid to die. It's nice when our Emotions line up where our thoughts line up. Our thoughts and feelings are congruent. They are not congruent. We don't feel this or that. We feel this and that. We use or. Or is a judgment word. Am I a Christian or am I not? Am I afraid of dying or am I not afraid of dying? Get rid of or when we're talking about feelings. Import and. I'm afraid of dying and I'm not afraid of dying. That's the way things are. That's the way Jesus was. That's the way he understood that he, I, he felt some aversion to fear. Well, he said, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Why did he say, take this cup from me? Some people, they say, well, it's because sin was poured on his back. I, I think he was afraid to die. Why would he be afraid to die? Because he lived in a body. When we face our end physically, we react bodily. We react something about us. This body was built to sustain us and to keep on going. And when we find ourselves facing, there's something inside of us that becomes alarmed. And there's something inside of us that says, I'm going to be okay, but I'm afraid, but I'm not, but I'm afraid, but I'm not. And you know what? Both of those are you. Don't let go of either one of them. You don't need to. Jesus didn't. This is what we find. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this very purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You know where Jesus learned to endure strong emotions? In the wilderness. He was facing death at that point and facing strong feelings. And what's he going to do? Is he going to try to push them out of the way by turning the stone to bread or push the emotions out of the way by seeing a miracle? Push the emotions out of the way by seeing the whole world bathed in his glory? You know what Jesus says? No, no, no. Why? Why no? Because Jesus understood he needs to be able to sympathize with people. 
We're not just going to be able to push death away. We're not going to be able to push emotions away. So Jesus has got to learn to sit in them, to hold the emotions and to hold the Father's hand at the same time. That's what Jesus does in the wilderness. And because he knows how to do this, he comes to the end of his life and can do the same thing. Now my soul is troubled. This is a week less before he's going to die. You'd think that he might be a little nervous about that. Not nervous about it. See, emotions, we've talked about them, feelings, they're like little kids in the backseat of a car. I want to stop here. I want to go there. And so there's a couple things you don't do when kids are in the backseat of the car. and you say, Okay, you little snot, you get up and take the wheel. <laughs> you don't do that. You don't do that. They don't get to take the wheel. Okay, I'll show you. You open the back door and fire them out. They don't, you don't fire them out of the car either. What do you do? What do you do with kids? I know, honey. I know you're hungry. We'll stop as soon as we can. What happens when you listen? What happens when the child listens? Not all the time. Sometimes you need a little NyQuil. I'm just kidding. Just, just, oh, too fast. That was too quick. Too quick. Um, you know, but, but sometimes if they feel heard, okay. Your feelings are like little kids. Don't throw them out of your car. But don't give them the wheel either. You register them. Register what you're feeling. I feel this and that. I feel that and this. Just touch them. You don't have to do anything about them. Just touch them. Don't throw penalty flags at them. Now, Jesus didn't do that. Do you know what ends up happening? Jesus wasn't afraid of the fear of death. That's interesting, isn't it? I think Jesus experienced the fear of death. I don't think he experienced the fear of the fear of death. Do you understand what I'm saying? you understand what I'm saying? I don't think Jesus experienced the fear of the fear of death. Sometimes when we approach, you might have felt this, when it occurred to you, J.C. is gone, I'm not ready to go. And sometimes we feel our fear welling up inside. Mm, There's something wrong with my faith. Because if my faith was strong, I wouldn't be afraid of death. And you know what we end up doing is we end up trying to fix our faith because we're afraid of the fear of death. And Jesus wasn't afraid of the fear of death. He knew that God didn't judge it. Sometimes we don't. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? I sat with a man who was facing death. And he told me about an encounter he had with someone earlier in his life. He was sitting beside someone's bedside who was facing death. But this was someone he was comforting. Now, I'm sitting at him, but he was telling me a story about him when he was younger. And this man placed his hand on his arm. And as the man I was speaking to, he was telling me about this. He he told me that he had to peel this guy's fingers off of his arm. And he started to sob. 
I knew this guy. And he was afraid of the fear that he felt. He was afraid of facing his own death. I was able to say to him, look at me. Look at me. Let him look at me. Let him and I know you. I've known you for a long time. And I know your faith. And I know who your Father in Heaven is. And I can assure you, when you get to the end of your days, you will not react like that man reacted. You will not clamp your hand on somebody's arm. And I could see him go. He didn't have to fight that. He could join it. Understood what he was feeling. There was a... It's a Christian. I'll say one more thing. Jesus didn't use the hope of eternity as something to contain his feelings. You know who did that? Used eternity in order to stuff feelings down? The Pharisees. See, they believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees didn't. And the Pharisees believed that if you have enough faith, you should understand that the resurrection of the dead means that you should live into eternity. Now, again, eternity is a really good thing. Eternity is a really good thing, and it's something we need to be mindful of, but eternity is not a plunger to push feelings down. Jesus could have his hand in eternity, but feel things he needed to feel. And the Pharisees were a little bit different. At any rate, uh, this Christian was taken seriously ill, and he became troubled about the lack of love that he felt for God. And he spoke about this experience to a friend. He was very concerned. He just wanted to generate love for God, and he didn't feel it. And it, and it frightened him. And then here's what this man said to his friend. When I go home from here, I expect to take my baby on my knee. Look into her sweet eyes, and tired as I am, her presence will rest me. I love that child with unutterable tenderness. But she loves me little. If my heart were breaking, it wouldn't disturb her sleep. If my body were racked with pain, it would not interrupt her play. If I were dead, she would forget me in a few days. Baby was very young. Besides this, she's never brought me a penny. She's been a constant expense. I'm not rich. But there is not money enough in the world to buy my baby. How is it? Does she love me or do I love her? Do I withhold my love until I know she loves me? Am I waiting for her to do something worthy of my love before extending it? And this guy got it. He said, Jesse, come on up. Oh, I see. He said, that's what he said. It's not my love to God, but God's love for me that I should be thinking of. It's not my love for God. It's God's love for me that I should be thinking of. And now how I love him 
more than I ever have loved him before. Father, thank you for your sympathy and sovereignty, that you are good and you are great. Thank you that we can hold on to both of those things at this time. You are accomplishing purposes, and Jesus understood that. And as we see in him, filling out, fulfilling purposes, but with the heart of compassion. Thank you for that, Jesus' name. Amen.